Welcome to another Rural Realities Podcast, presented by the Wisconsin Department of Agriculture, Trade, and Consumer Protection. On this episode of the Rural Realities Podcast, we are talking to New York Times bestselling author, songwriter, radio host, and humorist Michael Perry about his novella. I didn't really know what that was, but it's a fancy literary word for a short book. The novella is titled 40 Acres Deep, and I read it this summer. At times, it was a page turner, and at other times, I had to put the book down. I needed to sit on it and take a break. I'll explain why a little bit later in the podcast. I'm Karen Endress, Farmer Wellness Program Coordinator for the Wisconsin Farm Center. I have spent my career working with farmers, and I'm married to a farmer too. I'm looking forward to our discussion today about Michael's work and mental health in our rural communities. Welcome, Michael. This is your 18th book, and I understand you are working on two more. Can you share with our audience where you grew up and talk a little bit about your farming background? Yeah, you bet. I never, certainly never planned on being a writer. I I was born in uh, Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin. My dad was working at the paper mills at the time. My mom was a nurse. And my mom and dad met in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. They were both city kids. And from the time she was a, a young child right through college, my mom always said, I don't care who I marry as long as I don't marry a farmer. And so my dad had a chemistry degree. They got married. and He was working at the paper mills. And when I was two years old, he moved to Chippewa County and they bought a farm and they've been on the farm ever since they're 82 years old now. And so, uh, first of all, I was never meant to really be a farmer. If my mom had had anything to say about it, but uh, she was, uh, wound up loving that life and is happiest when she's at home on the farm. I just saw her this weekend. So I grew up on a, on a dairy farm, a very small dairy farm, grew up milking cows, baling hay, plowing, cleaning calf pens, I play football on Friday night, and by nine o'clock Saturday morning, I'd be shoveling manure into a spreader with my brother out in the heifer barn. That had a way of keeping you humble, no matter what heroics you pulled on Friday night. And then when I, at the age of sixteen, oh, and we logged too, so all went along we logged. And then Dad always had a flock of sheep because my dad was re, uh, taught to farm because he was a city kid. The old timers taught him how to farm, and it was that last wave of real small farmers who could make it doing it, doing things that way. And they all taught him that you should have multiple streams of income. You should have your, your milk check was your main source of income. And then you logged in the winter because you couldn't do a lot else. Plus the ground was froze up so you could skid the logs. And then the sheep uh, on a good year between the wool and the lambs, you could maybe cover the property tax. So that was my lifestyle growing up. Big, Big family. My mom, I have three adopted siblings and, and numerous, countless, almost foster uh, brothers and sisters over the years. And then at the age of 16, I started working summers on a ranch in Wyoming, regular working beef and hay ranch, road roundup, did branding, worked on the hay crew. Did that for five summers, and that's basically how I put myself through college. I'd work all summer as a, as a cowboy and ranch hand, and then I would come back to the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire School of Nursing. I have a bachelor's degree in nursing. The joke I always make is that I was the only cowboy in all of Wyoming who was putting himself through nursing school. And I heard some comments about that occasionally. But 
So I graduate from nursing school. I pass my boards. I get my license. I start working as a nurse, and I like it. But growing up, I, I was raised in an obscure fundamentalist Christian sect, which sounds scary, but it's a very loving, gentle place. I'm no longer part of it. Uh, but I just had a wonderful, wonderful life. We were, by definition, below the poverty line. But I always tell people, uh, every night when I went to bed, my, my stomach was full and I knew I was loved. And there were really no two greater privileges. But part of this church I was raised in is we weren't allowed to have television or go to the movies or listen to the radio. And, but what my mom did is she filled the house with books. And... Because I bugged her to do so, she taught me to read when I was four years old, so I could read before I went into kindergarten. And I, I just plowed through books every every year since. So I get out of uh, nursing school, and I'm, here I am, this guy who loves books, but it had never occurred to me to be a writer. Writers, even though I read piles and piles of books while I was on the farm, and Dad would have to hunt me down to do my chores, he, it just never occurred to me that a writer could be someone with blue jeans or who grew up working class. To me, writers were all from far distant, mysterious places. And they were authors with a capital A. And then when I got out of nursing school, I had taken a couple of creative, I took a creative writing course in college and I had one opportunity to write creatively in seventh grade. And I loved both of those experiences so much. They really spoke to me, even though I was a football playing pickup truck driving knucklehead. But after I got out of college, I had this friend who sold an article about canoeing a river in Wisconsin, and she sold it to a magazine. And I remember thinking, well, I didn't know you could get paid to write. So I went to the library, and I checked out a book on how to be a writer, and here we are. I want to know, um, today, kids probably may not know how to go to the library and check out a book. <laughs> so I'm thinking yeah, but, it would be a different yeah, approach but, today. <laughs> It was. I do get asked a lot, and I speak at writers' conferences or for writers' groups, and people always say, how did you get started, and can you tell me? Because people want to be writers. And, and I tell them, unfortunately, everything I learned and everything I did to get where I am today, pretty much 95% of it doesn't apply anymore. I mean, I was typing up book proposals on a manual typewriter and mailing them. So it's a different world. Yeah, but you have written 18 books already, and I understand you're working on two more, so soon to be 20. That's a lot of books. Yeah, well, I love to write, but I, I'm also a freelance writer, so freelance just means self-employed. And I, You know, I, I equate it. My brother's a logger and a farmer. My other brother runs heavy equipment. And we're all just self-employed, and, and so I love what I do, but my brother loves to log, too. It's hard work, but he, he loves it. And so for me, the writing, it starts with the fact that I love what I do, but I decided a long time ago to try and make a living at it. And then I all of a sudden wound up with a family and kids to feed. And so part of my being prolific has to do with having a lot to say or that I want to say, but mostly it has to do with buying my own health insurance. <laughs> Absolutely. And so you talked a little bit about your very unique upbringing and you know, high five to your parents for really learning from that generation of farmers. And I think that lesson still really applies today about diversification, um, but they definitely didn't write. So how does your upbringing um, or your personal past kind of inspire some of the things you've written and what you're looking forward to writing? Well, Slightly off topic, but one of the things that I'm glad you reminded me of is that, you know, I, I invoked my brothers already, but 
watching my dad farm and being raised by farmers, believe it or not, had a big influence on me being able to survive as a writer. I don't have calloused hands. I can't tear down your diesel tractor and put it back together. I can, but it won't work. Um, But, you know, you mentioned, I mentioned how my dad learned from the old timers about having three different sources of income. Well, my books have sold far better than I ever dreamed they might, but I can't just sit back and live off royalties. They don't make that kind of money. And so I learned early on, I'm very shy, but I learned early on that if I was going to make a living at this, I had to learn to go out and talk about my books. And in order to do that, I I wanted to be entertaining. So I learned to be funny. A lot of that just came from hanging out at the implement store and listening to farmers tell stories. And then um, I turned that into more and more speaking engagements. And then I do little one-man shows and I started a band and I write all the songs. And that part, just that blue collar work ethic thing, even though, again, I can't stress enough, I have soft hands. And my brothers have been known to say it's a good thing he learned how to type because he wasn't much good at anything else. Uh, but that that working class farmer ethic, work ethic, just really informed how I've approached my writing career. And then as far as how the experiences, I was so lucky because, as I said, I didn't come from at least not financial privilege. but I read voraciously, so my head went all over the world long before I left the farm. And then I, there were people in my family, a couple of grandparents, that encouraged me to travel. And and again, I just a lot of the way that I made it as a writer early on was I just would go and write a story about anything. If someone said, "Hey, I want you to hitchhike across America with truckers, and we'll have you write a story about it," I just said yes. Um, if someone called, uh, I got a call one day from an editor who said, could you climb Mount Rainier? Well, I grew up in the flat swamplands of northern Wisconsin, but the answer was yes. I said, yes, I can climb Mount Rainier, and then I'll awesome. find out later how to do that. Yeah. So just all those experiences eventually coalesce to give you all kinds of um, material. That's great. And the book that we're talking about today, 40 Acres Deep, what made you want to write that book or what gave you the inspiration or the idea? Well, there are a couple of things and, and part of it was just very uh, real world, real life. I have, uh, I live on a farm now. I am not a farmer and this farm has lain fallow for a long, long time, but it's an old farmstead and I have two pole barns, great big pole barns. And a couple of winters back, we had that year where we just kept getting more and more snow and it was stacking up and it wasn't blowing off the roofs and it was too much to shovel off and just kept accumulating and accumulating. And I started to worry about my, my pole barns collapsing. And indeed, that winter, many people all across the state and at least five barns within a square mile of me went down under the pressure of the snow and a farmer not far from here lost his life trying to clear the snow off his barn. And so I was up at two in the morning running torpedo heaters back and forth between pole barns trying to save them, trying to melt the snow off. And I was halfway between one barn plunging through drifts and cold and tipping the torpedo heater over and watching the kerosene run out. And I'm sweaty and angry and I was probably cussing. And, and then all of a sudden it just hit me and I thought, you know, I'm a writer with two pole barns. of what is in those pole barns is junk. But what if I was a farmer and what was in those pole barns was my livelihood, which, as I said, was true all around me here. And that was the seed of it where I just thought, you know, what what would I do if I was actually depending on those 
pole barns for everything. That percolated in my head for a while. And then during uh, COVID year there, when everything was shut down, I just uh, had a lot of time alone. And I started to think about isolation. And I started to think about me as a husband. Um, and then I also, in the course of my travels, I speak all the time with farmers and rural folks. And I lived it. I mean, I, I graduated from high school in 83, 1983. And I can remember a time when we were surrounded by tiny farms. And when I drive up, I was just up there this weekend for deer hunting to my dad's place. There's no, I think there's one, maybe two dairies that I go past on that drive from my hometown out to the farm. And so I've seen all those changes. I've seen, uh, and then I also work, uh, I've been a volunteer firefighter, EMT, first responder for 30 years in exclusively rural areas. So I've made those calls to, to the farmer that got hurt or the farmer that finally couldn't take it anymore. And so all of those things just kind of spun around. And I had this idea of just a short story. I was going to say, well, what would this farmer do in his frustration? He just wants a clean start and he just wants to be rid of all this heaviness in his life. And I started writing a short story and it just got a little longer and a little longer. And then it wound up being a novella, which as you said in the intro, I believe what novella means is longer than a short story, but shorter than a novel. That had me stumped for a second, but then I figured it out. But yeah, I mean. It's a beautiful, fancy word. But it is. It, it is. Short, it just means a small book. Yeah. And the, you know, the first chapter of 40 Acres Deep was really a page turner for me, but it also was really heavy. Like I felt like I knew Harold, the main character. I honestly felt like, oh my gosh, he's, he's this neighbor of mine, or he's this farmer that I know in this area. Um, his character just really resonated. And I felt like you were describing so many people that I've met and so you talked a little bit about it, but did you develop his specific character on a farmer you knew or someone you grew up around? No, he's definitely a, a you know melding together a lot of different farmers. There's they are definitely you know there's definitely a lot of the folks I grew up with the farmers that you know I used to go to a lot of auctions and you know there's a scene in there about farmers standing around at an auction and so obviously I've. I've known these characters like Harold forever. So some of it is literal. Uh, certainly the farmers around me who are trying to save their barns. I mean, that, that wasn't some sort of plot element. That was real life. And then the desperation. I mean, I do speak, a lot of my speaking and touring, I do in, in rural areas and largely rural areas of Wisconsin. And so even just in informal discussions after I'm done talking and I'm signing books and shaking hands, you know, that, I have those discussions. And then finally, as I said, part of it is me looking in the mirror too. And even beyond farming, there, you know, Harold is just dealing with, there are a lot of us, I think, that are trying to figure out where do we belong in this world with the changes that have come. And um, he's trying to sort through that. And, and as a husband, um, it, it is not autobiographical. I mean, this is not about my marriage, but there are elements of it. And, you know, one of the things that's always fascinated me is that I'm a loyal, faithful, and true husband. But that doesn't mean that I make my wife happy all the time and that I'm not hard to live with. And so he's sort of looking at himself and saying, how did I, how did I fail there? And what could I have done better? And is it too late? And so there's a combination, definitely. 
I mean, the biggest compliment I can get you already gave me, which is if someone who is a farmer or grew up on a farm or knows farmers says that this person reminds them of the real farmers they know, that, that's all I can ask. That's the best I can do. Absolutely. And, you know, and at times I got so frustrated with Harold because I wanted him to make changes in his life or with his business. Like I was, you know, seeing it from a different perspective and he really closed himself off to his community. Well, he lost a lot of his community. I feel like when the older generation passed away or as their businesses changed, their egg service providers um, changed, uh, he didn't really seek out others. Um, and I think, you know, farmers are resilient and he showed so much resiliency throughout the story. But at times he didn't show resiliency and I wanted him to, you know, kind of pull himself up and go talk to his neighboring farmer or, you know, if he needed to sell some of the land to make things better for him. Um, but then you look at some of the personal pain that he endured um, through loss and by not having someone to carry on his farming legacy. Yeah, I think, you know, one thing that I definitely drew on were the people I grew up with, and this is also what I see when I look in the mirror, is just what we used to just call plain old bullheadedness. Like, there are times when I go, look, I know what the right thing to do is here, or the better thing to do, and I ain't going to do it, because I don't want to. And there's definitely a lot of that. And there's and it's also a protective mechanism. You know, he just, he said, I'm done trying trying to fit into this world where I don't fit. So I'm just going to do things my way inside my cocoon as long as I can until I can't. And that, that believe it or not, is his own form of independence. I mean, I'm being, it, it is a heavy book. I just tell people it's a heavy book. It's unrelenting. Um, but, but I, and I, I didn't even want to publish it. I thought probably it was too dark. But I got to tell you, um, the number of emails and letters and people who have taken me aside who have connected with this book. And I did, even before I published it, I talked to some farmers. I had some farmers read it. I had some mental health folks read it. And I said, is it too much? And they said, it is heavy, but it's speaking truth to the situation. And I've been surprised at the number of people who have thanked me for just, and I don't mean that in a self-aggrandizing way. I just am saying that I'm glad that we went ahead and did it. And I think that the reason it does connect is I w it's unsparing. And I mean that it's unsparing in the way it looks at Harold. It's unsparing in the way it looks at the, the ways we trip ourselves up. It's unsparing in how it looks at me, even though it's fiction and I'm not the character. But there are elements in there where it's me going, dude, you, you know better. What's up? And then I, I really do feel like just I don't want to derail your interview, but for a second, I do have to say there is humor in the book. There's not a lot of it. But it's my kind of my favorite kind of farmer humor. Um, and the one, my favorite bit of humor is where he's going to start the torpedo heaters in his shed. And right before he, he, he lights them and then he looks and there's the, the decal on there that says, never leave your torpedo heater unattended. And he just goes, huh, and walks away. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was is awesome. Like, that is like the most character defining moment in the book. I think it's like, I grew up with those people. I'm that person a lot. Of years ago. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, thanks for the decal. I'll catch you later. Exactly. <laughs> and you know, and it, like you said, it did, although it was heavy and I did set it down a couple of times, probably because 
I too related to it so much or people that I love, I felt like they often feel trapped in our farm culture sometimes when they have these gifts. Like I so appreciated Harold's love of nature and his ability to go out in nature and be at peace. And, and part of that too, you know, you asked me where did the ideas come from? Some of this too. I, so you're, you're talking to a kid again who grew up playing football and deer hunting and cleaning calf pens and working on sawmills and logging. But I also always loved words and I loved poetry and beauty and, and so I love being able to operate in both worlds. And I wanted to write this tough story about farming. I write about him trying to start a pickup where you got to whack the solenoid with a hammer. You know, and there's a certain amount of us who know what that means. But I also, I remember one night stepping out at our farmhouse here, kind of isolated. I remember stepping out on one of those bitterly cold, still, full moonlit nights. And I looked out into the field and I could see these dark, shapes and I didn't know what they were and then all of a sudden they woofed and you saw them milling around and then all of a sudden they formed a line and disappeared into the trees and obviously what it was was a bunch of deer that had been yarded up and they were digging around in the snow trying to get some feed and I scared them and they all ran around and then formed up and followed the trail back into the woods and and, and it was moments like that or moments like when you come out and everything is covered in hoar frost I just wanted to to go back to the, the long-haired kid who now doesn't have any hair who would go to the coffee shop in the city and try to write poems. And, and yet at heart was still a farm kid, still a kid who, who skidded logs. And so I would see scenes like that in my real life and say, man, I just want to write those scenes. And, and that's part of this book too. I did try to put beauty in there. And, you know, when he's walking out back, even though it's a tough scene, he's, he's still cognizant of all the beauty around him. You know, and that's another thing that, so many, I can't speak for farmers, but so many that I talk to, no matter how bad things are, this is still their place. It's where they want to be. And that's the other great difficulty in changing or, or, or letting go. And that's how Harold is. As miserable as he is, he still sees what the back 40 looks like when it's covered in hoarfrost on a still morning in the winter. Well, and he's still, you know, he had sold his other animals, which he missed, he he misses and doesn't miss, but that's what we see a lot um, at the farm center when people are transitioning their businesses for many reasons, right? Whether we're helping them with a financial consultation, a transition planning, a mediation, or connecting them to counseling services, the transitioning, or even if, if you say it'll fix it if I just sell my animals, I'll have that income, I won't have those daily chores, but it doesn't fix it. You still feel that connection. And all he had left was his chickens, which he still took such good care of, even though he had barely anything for himself. And I really, you know, wanted to reach out, right, to Harold and be like, <laughs> if you only knew of the farm center, right, we could have helped you. As he looked at that, like what prevented Harold from seeking any help out there, even a neighbor or someone else in town? Well, I think and a, a quick side note with the chickens and just the idea of, I remember when we moved to this farm, we live on now and again, it's fallow and I'm not a farmer. I don't pretend to be a farmer, but I've raised pigs and we had chickens for years and years. Uh, but I remember the first day that I got my first two pigs on this farm. And I just remember unloading them from the truck and putting them in the pen and then going back up to my office where I write with my soft hands, but just feeling a different 
energy of vibrancy on the farm, just knowing that there were two farm animals out there digging in the dirt and doing what farm animals do. Like it, it lent this whole new energy to the place. And that's part of why I think it's hard to let go of these things. It's why Harold kept those chickens. Harold, his character never looked anywhere for help. He really, and I, I get that in our farm culture, right? That we pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can do it. You can fix it. So why didn't he seek anything? I think it's a combination of a lot of things. And of course, I've been talking about a fictitious character here, but number one, awareness. And that's slowly getting better. You know, the fact that you and I are even talking is a sign that that's getting better. I have a brother who, I mentioned my brother, the logger. And one day I was, it took me a long time, but I was revealing to him that during a particularly tough stretch when I didn't know if I could support the family with my writing, um, I was telling him about being up at 3 a.m., having a panic attack out on, you know, like running out the driveway just to try to get rid of the the fear that I had that I wasn't going to be able to pull this off. And all of a sudden I see this look of recognition in my brother's eyes and he's a logger and he starts unburdening himself to me about him having anxiety and panic attacks because he was afraid, you know, the price of lumber dropped or whatever. And he didn't know if he could feed his kids. And, you know, he's not exactly a hugger. Like he's not going to circle up and talk about his feelings, but there's this, he's made this progress to the point where he realizes, no, I need to talk to someone about this. And, and, and as a matter of fact, he, he, uh, sought some help and got it. So part of it, I think, is just not being aware. Part of it is definitely just that ingrained, I still have it. I have that called this, in my case, it's stoic Scandinavianism. Um, I don't want to talk about my feelings and you can't make me. And then I think one other thing, and this is based from watching family members go through this. Part of Harold's isolation is based in grief. If you go through enough tragedy and if things are bad enough, you just don't want to talk to anybody about it anymore, including people who say they're there to help. There's some sort of protective, even though it's in the long run, it's not protective at all. It's damaging, but there's this curling in on yourself and just going, I'm just going to cling to the one solid, still center of myself, even though I'm surrounded by darkness. And I, I think that's a part of certainly what I was feeling when I was trying to write his character. There's comfort in, in just holding still. I remember a friend who was going through a horrible loss involving a child. And I remember checking on him one time and he said, you know, I'm at that point right now. I just don't want anyone to check on me. I'm okay. In this case, you know, he should. And in the end he came out of this fine, but he just said, I'm just so tired of explaining it. And I'm so tired of talking about it. And I feel like some people are checking in, not so much to see how I'm doing, but just hoping I'll be over it. And so it's, it's that whole mix is very complicated and ultimately very dangerous for ourselves if we don't find the right source of help. And I really appreciate you bringing up the stigma that we have around mental health. I think it's everywhere across the country, but especially in our rural communities. And your book really brings it to the forefront and talks about it and helps us start a conversation between farmers and their loved ones. Um, and I know, like you've said, you've traveled the state. You've been out in those rural communities. Can you talk a little bit more about the kind of reaction that you have gotten from farmers and others in agriculture? Yeah, I'll start with the others. I mean, I the number of, and I don't know if it's just because 
daughters are more communicative, but I've received a number of communications from daughters who said, you wrote about my father. And they read about how hard it was to watch their father go through losing a farm. Now, I'm aware that not all farmers are men, and, and this is just a small sample. But a lot of the comments I've got are from the relatives you know, or the wives, the partners that are watching this unfold. And then the other is just I've – man, I, I just had a phone call from some – he's a singer on the East Coast. He's a, he's a farmer. And he lost his farm and had to sell his cows. And he wrote a song about it. And he's now been, to, it actually got a little viral attention. And, um, you know, he just said the same thing. He said, man, I read that book and, and that's exactly what I was going through. And so in general, it's, I am hearing from farmers, but I'm hearing so much from family of farmers and friends of farmers and relatives. I think, because they're the ones that are in another, they're in a uniquely helpless spot too. If they're doing everything they can to help this person, but the, it's not happening. And, and and by the way, I am not a, an expert. I am not a professional. I I don't in any way want to. I want to be very careful how I speak because there there are people who get up every day and study this stuff and do the best they can. I just I just am drawing on my own experience and background and trying to trying to connect honestly and, and with heart on this, on this subject. No, and we appreciate that. As someone who works with farmer mental health every day, I'm not an expert either, but what I can do is help connect farmers to those experts. And what 40 Acres Deep has done, what you know, being on this podcast has done is right. We're just trying to break down that stigma and get people talking about it because we all know it's the elephant in the room. And if, like you said, if these family members can start talking about it, if they can share the book with somebody and just get the conversation going so that we can help work on our farm culture and break down those barriers for farmers to seek a resource that's out there. That is a big win. And I think you just reminded me, there's one other category of folks I hear from, and, and this might be relevant too. I hear from folks whose family lost, you know, the farm is gone. But what they've appreciated, this, this book didn't bring their farm back, but they'll say, my dad read it or my mom read it and we lost our farm. But they, But what they appreciate is that someone understands what happened that the farm isn't gone because you weren't a good farmer. The farm isn't gone because you had bad business practices. The farm is gone because all of these things that so many people in the world don't understand came together and it had nothing to do with your skills or dedication as a farmer. And I do hear from most folks too, where they say, thank you for explaining. That's true. And I thought uh, 40 Acres Deep did a great job of, explaining all of those different things and all those different stages that a farm may go through as well. And I'm curious, as you wrote this, were you familiar with the mental health resources that are available to farmers? I knew about them peripherally. I mean, I didn't set out to write a book about mental health. I set out to write a book about this character. And then as I was writing it and realizing it was going to be really, as I said, unsparing, and I didn't think that 
uh, it should be anything else if I was going to write it honestly. Then I started to think, well, what's my responsibility if I put something out like this and someone sees it and thinks, oh, this will be a fun book about petting cows or something. And, uh, and, and that was why there's a little statement in the beginning that just sort of lets you know what you're in for. And then I actively pursued a few folks and just said, hey, if you could, you know, farmers, a couple other mental health experts, a couple of ag experts, and just said, hey, if you could recommend some contacts, who would it be? And that's why in the back of the book, we have a list nowhere near comprehensive. But yeah, that was, it was more me realizing, well, I need to take a little responsibility if I'm going to release this um, to give people uh, tangible options and information. Right. That's great. And, you know, we work with farmers at the Wisconsin Farm Center and their families every, every day. And sometimes we get to learn the outcomes of how the services help them. Sometimes we don't, you know, often we just don't hear back from them and, and we sit and wonder how they're doing. As I was reading this, I had a lot of curiosity about the main characters in the book including what their lives were like before. Like, what was Harold and his wife's farm like, you know, when it was at its prime, when he took it over? You, you talked to it a couple of times, but, you know, about when they were happy. And then wondering kind of what happened after, who it went to, did they carry it on in some way, shape, or form? So I've wondered, have you ever considered writing a sequel or a prequel to expand upon this character? Okay, so now I'm gonna I'll get a little bit into the business of publishing, <laughs> which I understand better than the business of farming. But when I wrote this, I have an agent in New York City. She's the real deal. She's been my agent since the late '90s. She represents people way more famous than me. And one of the things I love about her is she, for over nearly 30 years now, has always told me the truth. And when I had this finished, I sent it to her, and she emailed me back a few days later and said. This is some of the best writing you've done for 20 years. That was nice to hear because, as I said, she doesn't blow sunshine. She tells me the truth. She said, this is some of the best writing you've done in 20 years, and I'm pretty sure we're not going to be able to find a publisher for it. Now, some folks would be defeated, sad, or upset. I expected that answer, and the reason for that is that, A, it's a, the novella being a short book. It's a, it's a form that they don't publish often. Secondly, I'm pretty much an unknown Midwestern writer. And thirdly, I've dealt with this, and I've had some books that have been successful with major publishers, so this is not me whining, nor is it me criticizing them. It's just a report from the front. There's just a lot about us they don't get. When I did Population 45, which was a book about going back to my hometown and being on the volunteer fire department, I told them, you know, we could sell this to thousands of volunteer firefighters. If instead of sending me on a book tour, you send me on a fire department tour. And they just said, yeah, we just, I don't know, we don't know a lot about that, and um, we're not sure that that's a reading audience. And so what I did is on my own, I went to all kinds of firefighter conferences and sold thousands of copies of that book, not because I'm a hotshot, but because if you read it, you believe that I know what it's like to go inside a burning barn to make an interior attack. I know what it's like to recall, uh, to respond with the ambulance to a call where it turns out it's a neighbor or a relative. And so it was the same with this Herald book. They just don't know what to do with it because they don't know how to market that kind of thing. And so in this case, um, we just self-published it, which is something I've done in the past. So I just decided 
you know, farm kid, do it yourself. We're just going to do it ourselves. Um, I was looking for the sequel or the prequel. Oh, oh, I want to know more. The reason I went off my tangent is, despite what my agent said, she also said, now, she said, if you would write the novel that includes this part, but also includes what came before and what came after, she said, I might be able to sell that. So my answer to you is, who knows? But there's a shot. <laughs> Well, I know a great audience out there that would love to know more. And I think you just piqued our interest. And so I appreciate that. And I really appreciate you taking time today, talking about your book, 40 Acres Deep, talking about how you grew up and your connection to farming and just bringing up this whole topic of mental health in rural Wisconsin and rural America. You have a really unique perspective, and I really appreciate you sharing that today. Well, I thank you for having me. And because this has been um, pretty heavy and because I, we're talking about whether or not I'm a real farm kid or not, too, I do want to say I do a lot of humor, too. And uh, I have a website called sneezingcow.com. And the reason I bring that up is, I mean, it's obviously where you can find out more and all the books are there and everything. But because we've been so heavy, you should also know that the sneezingcow.com URL comes from a humor album I did years ago called Never Stand Behind a Sneezing Cow. How'd you know I was going to say that? That's exactly what I'm thinking is, oh, he came up with that because don't stand behind it. (laughs) And I'm so happy that I'm doing a podcast where I don't have to explain that to anybody who's listening to this podcast. I I sometimes will do that joke in cities and they laugh, but they always go, oh, that's funny. And I go, no, that's serious. (laughs) And another thing, I'll close with this. I I tend to ramble, obviously, but um, I did that joke at one of my events, you know, never stand behind a sneezing cow. And I talk about basically it's a property, it's a situation involving several of the properties of physics, like contents under pressure and ballistics and the path of least resistance and inertia, although in this case you might call it monertia. And then I always say, I don't know if it's ever happened to you, but it it has happened to me and it is a jaw-dropping experience, although that would not be your best move. And so I did all my sneezing cow, never stand behind a sneezing cow jokes. And this old farmer, I was, again, signing books at the end of the event. And this old farmer came through and said, I have a bone to pick with you. And I said, oh, well, you and a whole bunch of other people. And he said, "Uh, cows don't sneeze, they cough. And I said to him, well, as a farm boy, I want to tell you, you are exactly right. But as a humorist, I got to tell you, a sneezing cow is way funnier than a coughing cow. Absolutely. And again, thank you for your time today. And I encourage everybody to actually, I've also listened to the book um, and it is a great audio listen. It's about Mm. four-ish hours and you tell the story, which is amazing. So whether you like audiobooks or you like to pick it up and read, encourage you to go check out 40 Acres Deep by Michael Perry. Thank you for being our guest today and sharing this really important story and talking about our farm culture and farming in general and bringing that to light and the challenges that we face. Thank you. And a a very quick note, if you go to your independent bookseller, the the book is available online everywhere, but if you go to your independent bookstore, they may not have it in stock, but they can order it through a company called Ingram. So if you just give them the name and the author and the title, they'll be able to find it. Thank you so much for, for having me. 
The Wisconsin Farm Center with the Department of Agriculture, Trade, and Consumer Protection provides a variety of services to farmers and farm families across Wisconsin, including financial consulting, transition planning, conflict mediation, veterinary diagnostic analysis, a farmer wellness program, and more. For additional info, you can call the Wisconsin Farm Center toll-free at 1-800-942-2474 or email them farmcenter at wisconsin.gov. Also, the website address is datcp.wi.gov. Also, if you're experiencing depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, or just need a welcoming ear to talk to, call the free and confidential 24-7 Wisconsin Farmer Wellness Helpline at 888-901-2558 to talk with a stress counselor anytime. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Rural Realities Podcast.